0: Welcome to Ink's The Founder's Project with Alexa Von Tobel. I'm Alexa, the founder of LearnBass, author of New York Times bestselling book, Financially Fearless, and second book, Financially Forward. I'm also the founder and managing partner of Inspired Capital, a venture firm focused on the entrepreneurs of the future. Each week, we sit down with the top founder to share their story of guts, inspiration, and drive. Hi, everybody, I'm Alexa Von Tobel, and this week, I'm very excited for you to meet my dear friend, Dr. Paul Judge. Paul is a serial tech entrepreneur and investor, He holds a PhD in network security, is an expert on information security issues, and has invented approximately 30 patented technologies. He was on the founding team of Cypher Trust, which was acquired in 2006 for $273 million. He then co-founded PureWire, which was acquired by Barracuda Networks in 2009. Next, he co-founded LumaHome, which was acquired in 2018, and he's currently the co-founder of Pindrop, which has raised over $100 million in venture funding. On top of all of that, he worked briefly at IBM and then NASA. He co founded Tech Square Labs in Atlanta to invest in the next generation of Atlanta founders. And he's been named to Fortune's 40 Under 40 list, MIT's Top 100 Innovators, and Black Enterprise 50 Most Powerful Players. He's also a fellow new Crown Fellow at the Aspen Institute. Welcome, Paul. I'm excited to have you. Alexa. Uh, Paul, you got to take a vacation. Literally, everything that you've accomplished is just wild. <laughs> I think I want to start with the fact that you have been truly a repeated serial entrepreneur in technology, cyber securities, et cetera. I just have to start with the question of, first of all, what have you had most fun doing in your, in your now storied all career and you're like not even you know, 35 years old?
1: Whatever, I'm, I'm well beyond 35 years old, but the, the most fun, I just, I love getting back to the whiteboard and, and figuring out a new problem to solve. Every time, it's there's this Jay-Z song that's like, treat every song like your first song. Like before you had any hit albums, just go back to when you were riding a bike with no seat. And every time we go solve a new problem, it, it kind of gives you that feeling of you kind of really building something from nothing. And so I, I love the process.
0: Because you are a serial entrepreneur, by the way, not just of one company, four companies and all of them have been successful by almost every metric that you can like look at success, especially for all the young entrepreneurs out there. What do you feel like you've learned time after time that makes you successful? So I hear you get back to, get back to your roots, get back to problem solving, but what would you say are the two or three things if you step back from it all that you say are the lessons that you take with you when you come to any new project that were the hardest to learn?
1: You know, even if I go back to like Cypher Trust, the first company that I worked on, I mean, when we started, we were building a product that it turns out people didn't care about. They didn't want to buy it. So we built this product that we thought was the right thing. And we took it to customers and they threw us out. And we had to learn pretty early to like actually listen to customer feedback and what people would today call like product market fit. And, you know, that was a, a tough lesson in that, you know, it took us two years of the company going up and down to really understand what the market wanted. And then we had something like people started to buy it and the customer base started to grow. The, the second thing we learned there was we were fortunate, like, we, we built a, a pretty amazing team. Right? Like, some of the people who were, were part of the team have you know gone on to do a, amazing things, like Dimitri, who helped start CrowdStrike, and you know, Jay Chaudry, who founded Zscaler, and our Ar- you know, Arjun, who started Rod Sale. Like, but that team what we had at, at Cypher Trust, it was this world class team. And So, I realized the importance of like building is what I think of as an Olympic team to like go to battle with you and kind of go the distance uh, with you. That was a, another big lesson that we, we learned along the way, like really listening to customers and how important that that team that you surround yourself with is.
0: What drew you into tech? Like, let's go back to your roots, your childhood, however it started. What led you there?
1: So I, I grew up in, in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. And, you know, there my, my mother was a uh, educator, she taught at the, the technical college and she at the time taught the subject called office occupations. And it was like what you would call now basically helping people be uh, executive assistants or, you know, and so was typing and filing and so forth. So we used to always have a typewriter at the house. And I remember when the typewriter turned into a word processor one day, and then the word processor turned into like this old 286 computer with five inch disc. And I would just like play typing games on it, Alexa. And then I realized that if you, if you didn't close the, the disk drive, it would give you a, the C prompt thing. And if you type to it, it would type back. And that's how I stumbled into programming. Like, you know, as a kid in Rouge, Louisiana, that, wait a second, if I type the right things, I can actually make my own game. And then I you was know, stumbling around town and I would like start making like websites for like used car lots. Right. And then I uh, got a job at Exxon chemical plant. There I was like making databases. And I never at that time even knew that Silicon Valley existed. I didn't know that computer science was a career. I actually went to college and thought I was going to major in chemical engineering. because That was my view of the world. I lived in Baton Rouge. I was going to work at the plant. Right. And then got to college and realized, oh, this is a whole major. And I can switch my major to computer science and I can like code and build stuff my whole life. And that's kind of how I got into computer science
0: do you feel like you've developed some sort of trick or some sort of repeated pattern that you have when you're trying to solve a problem? If you wanted to pay it forward to somebody, what would you say is the gear that you use to go and be so great at when you're trying to really build something special?
1: Uh, a, a couple of things like tricks. I mean, one is like just removing like fear of failure, kind of out of your mind. Once you get past that, like, you will try the high difficulty tricks and like you'll actually give things a shot that other people will overlook. And once you do that, like you're, you're kind of in this zone where you will explore things and you'll assume that a solution exists and your journey is then just to go find it and to like decompose that problem into pieces and kind of question every assumption that the world has made about a topic until you find something that no one else has stumbled on yet. And so that's a lot of what it, it, it comes down to is assuming there's an answer in there somewhere and other people have just overlooked it. Sometimes you're wrong and you just hit a dead end, like everybody else. But more times than you would imagine, you, you stumble upon something that is, is useful.
0: When you think about the fact that you've literally had four companies, so let's say them again, Cypher Trust, PureWire, Luma, Pindra. What would you say is the lesson that you keep taking with you, beyond just the team, beyond just the product market fit, but you now have pattern recognition in a way that very, very few entrepreneurs get to have, you know, I've, I've done a few uh, startups. I mean, I, I, look up to you. So what does that pattern recognition look like that you have?
1: You want more at bat so that you can get better is how I, I think of it. Right? Like I actually never stop and think like you were saying four companies, like, Oh wait, has it been four? I just, I think, I don't think of it that way. I think of it as like, okay, what is a big problem that we can go solve that exists in the world? and like can we go take a shot at building a solution that people are going to care about and you know we work our way through that and figure out kind of how to get better customer acquisition how to get better product development And you know at some point when that company has going to reach this moment and been acquired or gone public we hopefully look around and find another problem to solve and then we think about hey what could we have done better right could we have been better at partnerships could we have been better at at branding, because we have been better at kind of been more efficient with capital, so we can go further. And uh, I think the universe keeps making problems that need to be solved, and we just try to get more more efficient at at, at doing it a, along the way. And so, I mean, the, the lessons I think so many of them are you know some are just about perseverance, right? You mentioned a second ago, like the, the the tough spots that come along the way, and a lot of people I've just watched a lot of people just check out and give up and, you know, just sticking with it and making sure you, you structure the company and your expenses so that you can stick with it. And if you have a backwater, you can keep going and the morale's there and you have two backwaters, And, you know, I've had companies where we put, you know, we have a goose egg and we, we might shrink together two, three, four back and then we get the right thing and like things start to take off. And so one of the biggest things I've learned is just kind of how much of it is about endurance uh, and, and perseverance and just, and making sure that, you know, even if the market's not ready for your product right now, you're having technical problems right now, you can keep the team motivated and you all can kind of see the bigger picture and, and work your way through the end.
0: So I want to go and, and talk a little bit about the team. So, you know, whether it's standing up a business or going through an acquisition, it's just such a major test of the team. And on the people front, you know, you've had you've had co-founders before. What do you look for? What what has been critical in your kind of anytime you've had a co-founder, which I think has now been a few times, and what do you bring to the equation in that founder partnership? And what do you look for in the other partner?
1: I think so much of it is, sure, you all have kind of a a similar vision of what success looks like. Like if you're starting this journey together, what are we building? Are we building kind of a, a company that will, Going to be the best in the Southeast, the best across the globe? Or are we going to take on consumer enterprise and, and tell? Like having the similar vision of what we want to be when we grow up is, is so key. Uh, and then I think having the same urgency about achieving that vision, right, uh, is kind of where a, a disconnect could happen uh, with, with founders. And so that's what I look for. Do we have the same kind of goal? And then do we have the same drive to get there?
0: Paul, you just said something that I absolutely love and i would never heard somebody say, which is, you said, it's not only important that you have the big vision that you share that with your co-founder or many co-founders, but also the urgency and timeline of how you want to go and attack it and get there. And I think that's a really good point, which how quickly you want to go attack that vision matters. What advice would you give beyond that to everybody out there listening about founders that, that maybe is not obvious advice?
1: I think not, not obvious advice. I mean, it's, it's an interesting kind of relationship that, that happens. I mean, if you assume that, you know, the average company is a seven year journey to success, like you're devoting a large amount of your life to, to spend, you know, 40 plus hours a week with another human being. And, you know, for in a, in a social setting, that doesn't happen that many times in life <laughs> for a personal relationship. And so you typically put a, a long amount of thought in, into it. Uh, but, you know, sometimes with co-founders, you just you jump into it. And so really thinking through, like, do I want to spend seven years of my life, like in the same room with this person? And there's so many factors that go into that, like, you know, just personality and, and style and kind of work ethic and uh, you know, trustworthiness and just communication style and uh, really thinking about it. I've walked away from a number of companies that could have made a lot of money because just the right vibe wasn't there with the, the co-founder. It doesn't mean I was right or they were wrong or vice versa. It just, it wouldn't have been the right thing to spend seven years of life doing. And I think sometimes you, you have to make that decision that the market might be the right one, timing in the market space may be the right one. But you know, the personalities aren't going to survive seven years of, of tense moments.
0: What is your process before you decide to go back into the ring? You've gone back, you know, back to the mat many, many times, you know, specifically after PureWire. What made you decide to raise your hand and say, let's, let's go do this with Luma Home? And I find that for a lot of entrepreneurs, so much of their identity gets held up in the business. And, you know, speaking personally, I remember after Learn Best trying to think through that transition, it was such an, an an exciting but also uncomfortable moment because so much of your identity is in the baby that you just birthed and built and lived for and literally thought about you know twenty four hours a day seven days a week. How do you think about those transitions and what happened to Paul, you specifically, that then makes you say, "Oh, I got to go do this. This is happening."
1: Yeah, for me, it's you know after we did say Cipher Trust and it was acquired by by Secure Computing. And you know, I was 29 at the time, and I became CTO at Secure Computing, which was you know Nasdaq public trade company at the time, and it was like went from you know 300 employees to 1,500 employees. But I was I want to go get back on a whiteboard and build something fresh, and and so I stayed for a year and a week, and I shook hands with John McNulty, who was my boss, the CEO at the time, and I did not know what I was going to do. Right, it was my first time having like a week off in my life, <laughs> and uh, but I woke up so early the next morning and sat straight up in bed at like 6 a.m. I was like, okay, what am I going to do? What am I going to work on? And within like two months, we found a new problem to go solve. And so that was my first time experiencing that of, okay, if I have the ability to do what I want to do, what, what is my default action? And it's kind of to get it back on the whiteboard. And so, but the you know, responsibility of kind of getting the integration right with the acquirer is, is one that's important. Right, and one that you kind of can't shortcut or shortchange. And so, uh, after that, you know, PureWire, we started that, and it was acquired by Barracuda. And Barracuda had an amazing team. So, like Michael Peroni and, and, and Dean Draco, who were the founders of Barracuda, and it was this rocket ship. And we were part of the team for several years. And you know, we ran a lot of the security research from here. Uh, we moved a lot of things to the cloud. But then, as that integration was was working, you know, I met VJ, who was my co-founder at Pindrop. And at the time I wasn't thinking about starting a new company, like life was good. I was, you know, leaving the office at a reasonable time. And, and I met BJ and he had this research paper and he was deciding if you should start a company or go kind of take this job at a big company. And the research paper was like, wow, dude, does that work? Can you do that for real? Oh, let's go do it. And it was just like, right there. It's like, yeah, let's meet again tomorrow. And then let's meet again tomorrow. <laughs> and there wasn't a big, it was just like, wow, there's something big here. And we just got going. And so that's what happened in the transition from like Purewire slash Barracuda to, to PenDrop, And then, you know, as PenDrop was working and kind of scaling, uh, I then kind of had this revelation that, wait a second, there's more VJs. There's more like brilliant people who just need help, like taking their idea from idea to like an actual company. And I got rid of my office in Buckhead and moved as close as possible to Georgia Tech. And we brought this old Office Depot building and we turned it into Tech Square Labs. And we're like, hey, I just want more smart people to come here and like think about stuff and we can help build companies. And so that became the, the, the approach to, to doing that.
0: Tell us a little bit about Tech Square Labs and what, what excites you about it.
1: You know, that's, that's so much of the, the core of it. You know, I, I went to grad school at Tech, but then, you know, since then, I was kind of on the other side of Atlanta and kind of disconnected. And I, I had to, 10 years later, realize like, wait a second, this place is, is special. There's 20,000 students. There's 11 different engineering programs. It's top six in the country in every one of them, right? And so you think of the quantity and quality, right? There's $2 billion of research that happens annually, and we just thought that it was a fertile place to kind of meet people and find ideas, and and has held true. And so what it has meant is, you know, every six months, there's some industry I knew nothing about that I'm learning, right? It's an augmented reality for wayfinding to building efficiency software to like loan trading for banks. And so every six months, I'm learning some new industry and meeting a team and helping uh, figure out how to apply technology to solve that problem. And it just, it keeps me young.
0: I think that is very true. It does. It keeps your mind young when you're thinking about new, exciting opportunities. I'd be remiss not to ask you, how do you think about investing, you know, outside of the San Francisco, the California, New York you are a pioneer right now thinking of investing, you know, particularly Atlanta, but what's your opinion of emerging technology cities and how should investors think about them? Uh, and, you know, what's your opinion over what the next five to 10 years will look like around that, especially given COVID?
1: Yeah, I think yeah, COVID has certainly accelerated the world's understanding of these overlooked kind of resources that, that exist. And there's so many different types, I think, of of overlooked kind of resources. You know, one has been based on geography, people that have overlooked the Atlantas and the the Pittsburghs and, you know, Raleigh's and especially these cities that have these large research universities. There's so much IP that exists. There's so many bright minds that that exist. And so, uh, you know, that's one thing that's been overlooked traditionally. And obviously, I think that, you know, diverse founders have largely kind of been disconnected from the epicenter of, of tech investing. And so, you know, historically, I've kind of spent my time back and forth between San Francisco and Atlanta. And a couple of years ago, I got rid of my apartment in San Francisco and just said, look, I'm doubling down, totally focused on Atlanta and this, this region. And so I see now more of that. We were seeing over the last couple of years, companies put their second headquarters in Atlanta. And now, you know, as you mentioned, with COVID and the ability to kind of work anywhere, we see, you know, individuals just decide to move here and move other places and, this decentralization of what is the epicenter of tech investing, uh, I think, will be positive for the country overall uh, and certainly positive for, for places like Atlanta.
0: Alexa here. Not only do I get the opportunity to speak with all types of founders on, for starters, but I'm a repeat founder myself. We all know how vital fundraising is to a startup. Carta knows this, too. That's why they had founders in mind when they created their fundraising suite providing tools and support to take the friction out of fundraising. They save founders time and money, allowing you to focus on your goals, not the admin work needed to close a round. From simply issuing safes to quickly receiving funds, Carta Fundraising Suites helps their cap table customers raise a better fundraising round. To learn more or to get started, go to carta.com forward slash fundraise. That's carta.com forward slash fundraise. You spent so much of your career thinking about security cybersecurity, different aspects of security. And you have a unique vantage point as you think forward the next decade. And internet security is evolving rapidly. And I think it's getting scarier and scarier in some aspects. But if you think a decade out, what are some of the obvious hypotheses that you have? Or what's just incredibly clear to you that maybe isn't clear to everybody that's listening?
1: Hmm. I think what I've seen over the last 20 years is that at the moment, the rest of the world is just getting excited about that technology. The attackers are already busy figuring out how to break it and how to compromise it. And so we, we, you know, Cypher Trust was all about seeing that happen with email and then Purewire was all about seeing that happen with, with website content. Uh, And the fact that people were getting mobile devices and your data was leaving the office for the first time. Right? So while everybody was excited about iPhones and iPads, like the hackers were figuring out how to disrupt that. You know, when we started Pindrop, it was all about, wait a second, voice communication is having this reemergence with voice assistants and people wanting to talk on the telephone and and all of a sudden breaking into a bank didn't mean you had to break into their servers. You could pick up the phone and trick a customer agent into letting you into someone's account. So the entire interface that you're trying to protect has changed. And I think we'll are continue to see more of that, right? As you know, keyboards disappear, and you know, virtual reality, augmented reality interfaces become key as you know people move from you know, just in-person meetings to now virtual meetings and understanding, you know, being able to spoof voices, being able to spoof video of individuals. It becomes a very different frontier. And so the things that we used to worry about, like you know, basic database security or basic file encryption, like we still have to continue to do those things, but all of these new interfaces and new ways to communicate. We have to figure out how to bake security uh, into them Uh, because there's somewhere there's an attacker sitting around uh, thinking about that right now in their office. And so somehow the world thinks about these hackers as like individual uh, people kind of sitting in their basement, but they're large enterprises, like they have offices, they have board meetings, right? They have revenue goals. And when you think about the adversary from that standpoint, like they're having projections and they have a strategy of how they're gonna continue to compromise the world and take money from good people.
0: Wow, oh my gosh. You just gave me like a dark vision (laughs) into just truly how sophisticated the the world can get. What are the one or two things that you personally do that everybody out there should follow, given how much you know about security? You know, I'm one of your dear friends. I want to know what you do. (laughs) I I need to copy all your rules. But what are the few things that you do specifically, and you know, particularly maybe touch on video?
1: On on video, you know, there's now the ability to, to spoof video and spoof voice. And you could take a public figure, and with enough data of like YouTube videos of them, you can make kind of a full speech that looks like them, that sounds like them. And so when you think about what that means for business communication, uh, what it means for kind of the political landscape, uh, it's, you know, the, the state of the art there has, has opened up some, some doors that are, that are worrisome about kind of what does trust mean? Like what does digital signatures mean uh, in, in this world where we're all trusting uh, videos? Uh, but I think for an average consumer user like myself, I mean, the, the biggest weak points end up being, you know, passwords, Right. And, you know, deciding what we click on. Right. Like if you think about an individual being compromised, your computer being compromised, your personal accounts being compromised. The, the, the weakest link is, is typically, you know, your password security, reusing passwords, not using unique ones, not using password storage, uh, not having two factor authentication turned on and on all the accounts. And so as an individual, I think those basics go so far because most of the society uh, doesn't do that. And so those are, I think, the two main takeaways I I would think of as a person.
0: Paul, I want to transition to you. You are a friendly, kind, so patient. Um, And behind the scenes, you're doing not just like one or two amazing things, like six amazing things at all times. What are the, the rules that you swear by? You've clearly, you know, for the young entrepreneurs out there who are 20... Um, so much of it is personal growth, learning yourself, learning what sets you off, what what makes you your best version of yourself, the worst version of yourself. Um, tell us a little bit about your personal growth journey and just the things that you swear by.
1: Things that I swear by, at the core, you know, there's this, this core layer of just, you know, honesty and, and transparency, right? That, you, you know, you need with yourself uh, you need with the, the, the people that you're working with, you need with your family. Um, and, you know, that's that's one thing that you just absolutely can't compromise. And oftentimes as an entrepreneur, you have to, you know, have this optimist view, optimistic view that things are going to work out. And if you're not careful, you can kind of fool yourself of being detached from reality. And you could kind of see a slippery slope of, you know, things that aren't true or aren't transparent. And so that balance of, you know, being an optimistic founder and uh, trusting that you're gonna work your way through things, you have to balance it like being true to yourself and being transparent to to those around you. Uh, If not, things get really bad, right, for everyone. And then, you know, the second part of just aiming to, to swing for the fences, because I think some people think they can cheat hard by going small. Right? They think, oh, if I work on this smaller idea, there won't be as much competition, it'll be easier, I won't fail. Learn that along the way. And it's hard, it's, it's, if you're working on a little bitty idea, it's hard to get smart people to come work on it with you. Nobody wants to, work, wants to work on your little bitty idea. And so you might as well kind of go big. But if you think about it the right way, you can layer it so that, I think of it as like a home run one base at a time. And it's like, how do I get to first and get saved? And how do I get to second and get saved? Do, so I go big, but I give myself these, these stages. Those are some things that I, I, I take across different problems, across different companies, across different projects is, and to your point, when juggling multiple things, you, you have to do that, like balance kind of how you've been honest and transparent and how you really stage everything, like go big, but figure out how to keep things in, in, in parallel locked up.
0: Entrepreneurs are wild individuals who are often not that balanced. That's what often makes them good, right? You go full tilt on something in a way that you kind of jump off the bridge, but you need the counterbalance. What's the counterbalance that keeps Dr. Paul Judd you know, on, on the tracks?
1: Counterbalance for me is I think two things. One is, you know, my you know people often say work hard, play hard, but like really have, you know, really interesting work life and fortunate to have like a really interesting kind of personal play life as, as well and so you know that that balance of you know kind of work like crazy for you know this week or this month or this quarter and then go balance it with okay where am i going to spend a week or whose crazy party are we going to or what are we and so you know as much as we invest in in tech companies you know we also own a, a music festival and conference called a3c that's kind of the i think of it as like the southwest southwest of of kind of wrap in Atlanta in 2020. And so, you know, there we get to do work with like people like 2 chains and TI and, and so forth. And so you know, one call, it may be a really deep cybersecurity enterprise call, but the next call may be, you know, kind of brainstorming w- with those guys about what we're doing around culture and around social justice and, and so forth. And, and so I tend to make sure our, our business interests are, are well balanced. And so that even if I'm being productive and doing work, we can, I can rotate between different topics, right? So one call may be, you know, about investing in in software companies and the next call may be, you know, working on a medical cannabis company that that we started. And so that helps with kind of the brain fatigue of being able to work on different topics that that are so balanced.
0: Last question on you personally. I think you may be the entrepreneur that I've um, been fortunate to have on this show who truly has more balls in the air than normal. Do you have a hack for organization? Is there something that you do that just you swear by?
1: Yeah, I, th- I think it's it's fundamentals for me. Uh, it's just, it's literally what are my, my goals for the week? Whatever you want to call it, accomplishments and objectives or OKRs. Like, and then literally each day, treating it like that, right? So kind of brain dumping in the night before and then pick up the next morning. And so, so much of it is just, is fundamentals and, and time management. Every so often I use a... Uh, what do you call it, like a time tracking software? Because if you think you're working on three or four things and you think you know what your priorities are, if you actually manage and monitor your minutes, you'll look up and realize maybe I'm spending my time different than how I think my priorities should be, and you can then adjust.
0: I love it. Also, um, for everybody out there listening, my favorite thing about Paul is he just, he'll state something that's really insightful and then he'll just be like, you know, basics. (laughs) Fundamentals, basics. Paul, when it's Sunday night and you're looking at the week ahead of you, what gets you most excited?
1: Meeting new entrepreneurs. i tell you right now, we have you know, partnered with, with SoftBank and Opportunity Fund that Marcelo you know, had the vision of. And so over the last few months, I've met hundreds of diverse founders that I have never had a chance to meet. So every week I'm, I'm meeting so many, not just entrepreneurs, but like diverse entrepreneurs. And that is so much excitement in my life right now to kind of help those founders be, be successful.
0: What is your favorite interview question? So you've built incredible teams. You've seen challenges through teams. You've learned so much. What is the question you like to ask somebody to really understand and get to the core of who they are?
1: One question I would ask someone is kind of, you know, what's the one thing you would go back and do different? And I think it it helps you understand kind of, you know, self-awareness and then kind of also kind of the the ability to admit mistakes and and, and failures and uh, adjust moving forward and be honest with yourself about it.
0: I like that one. I like that one a lot. Today, in your many big moments of your career, what was your biggest pinch me moment where you literally, you look like, you're going to look back at it and you're going to be like, I literally can't believe that amazing thing happened. What was it?
1: You know, I think I still remember the, the day that Cypher uh, Trust was acquired, right, in 2006. I remember where I was when, when the deal closed. And it was, you know, after six years of like amazing, you know, grueling work, and we landed the, the plane and, and got the transaction closed. And it was like, oh, that's what it looks like. You know this feeling, you've heard of it, but like when you actually see the transaction close and you see kind of dollars hit account, and not that it's all about the money, but it's kind of that little point of of kind of recognition of closure that, you know, here's the translation of years of hard work. And you just kind of remember that moment. And sometimes uh, as you, you go on and there's late nights, you kind of remember like, it all translates to some value, some output, some way of making the world better. Uh, and so I, I remember kind of that, you know, closing that, that first deal.
0: Last question is, if you get to pay it forward, what is one startup that you're excited about right now? It can be anything on the planet. But if you want to give recognition to some great entrepreneur out there who's working on something cool, what is it?
1: There's a, a company called Vitable. And there's a young founder named Joseph, and he's like a solo founder. And he decided that the, the healthcare system's broken and that people that uh, you know, are, are paid minimum wage or have you know, working stuff don't have access to good healthcare. And instead of complaining about it, he said, I think the way I can fix this is to get rid of a bunch of inefficiencies and kind of deliver healthcare through your phone and then actually have somebody come to your house and check on you and do your blood work. And he said, hey, I think we could do all of this for like $50 a month, not $1,000 a month. And so that's a, a company we started working with recently that is early stage, but really excited about kind of how it's bringing healthcare to thousands of people.
0: I love it. That's wonderful. Everybody, if you want to learn more about Paul, check out his website, pjudge.com. Check out Tech Square Labs in Atlanta if you're there and local, or check out Pindrop. And thank you all so much for joining us. And next week, I'll be back with Inc. The Founders Project with Alexa von Tobel. Paul, I'm so honored that we got to have you here today. Thank you so much. This really meant a lot to me.
1: Thanks for having me.